are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bibles with me tonight and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, as you're turning there, I do want to say thank you for all the text messages and the emails and the phone calls of everybody that has mentioned they've been praying uh, for my family and I. My wife was receiving them while we were gone. I was receiving them. And uh, thank you so much. And we miss being here on Sunday. I ask you to continue to pray for my parents. And uh, my mom is still in the hospital there in San Antonio and uh, praying the doctors will be able to have wisdom and to get the swelling to go down there in her brain. But uh, just pray that God would give grace and God would give peace there and hopefully looking forward to seeing her uh, go back home soon and to be able to be there. Be praying for them if you would. Revelation chapter number two, we're going to begin reading in verse number eight down through verse number 11. Revelation chapter two, verse number eight the Bible says that unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days." Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we do thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to come to your house during the middle of the week. And Lord, I thank you for those who are here and may have come straight from work. And Lord, I pray that you might help us not to meet here tonight and sing and sit and listen to preaching out of habit. But Lord, I pray that we might have a true hunger for the Word of God tonight, and pray that you might speak to us tonight and leave with something, Lord, leave with, leave with something different in our heart than we came. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight, as we look in Revelation chapter number two, the second letter to the church at Smyrna, I want to, with the Lord's help, I want to help us if we could enter into uh, the mind of our Savior and, uh, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ as he's writing to this church here, which is, by the way, his church at Smyrna. And as we read through this and as I preach through this night, I hope to be able to help us understand where he is coming from, why he's writing this, and, and the heartbeat behind our Lord Jesus Christ writing this letter to his church. You know, letters, most of the time, I know there's open letters that people write, there's letters that are public, that are made public, but most of the time, letters are personal. Letters are something that I want to put from my heart. I want to put it and I want to write on with, with a pen and I want to write it on paper and I want to give it to somebody for them to read, for them to digest, for them to consume, and for them to be able to get my heart and my mind on the matter. So you think about it as we read these seven letters, but this letter tonight especially, I want us to help us to understand tonight what is, what is going on. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ write this letter to the church at Smyrna? The letter to the church of Smyrna is identified just by way of introduction tonight as the shortest of the seven letters to the seven churches. Oh, but its length doesn't make it of any less importance. 
for us today, and it, its length and its shortness doesn't signify that this church is any less important than, say, the church at Ephesus or the church at Philadelphia, the church at any others. In fact, Smyrna is one of only two of the churches that the Lord Jesus Christ had no condemnation for them. He had nothing bad to say against this church at Smyrna. Like most cities in Asia Minor, Smyrna was a hotbed of idolatry, immorality, paganism. Uh, they defied and, uh, anything that was of God, and they deified everything, including the city of Rome itself. Uh, historians tell us they even had a goddess named Roma after the city of Rome. Every single thing in society, every single thing in their culture, they would lift up and they would deify to worship that instead of the true and living God, which the church at Smyrna was faithfully preaching. Part of the major problem that the church in Smyrna would have to deal with that was uh, uh, particular to their city because all of these cities dealt with the idolatry, all of them dealt with uh, the immorality, the paganism, but they were dealing in their city with a large faction of Jews who rejected Christ, and on top of that, they even blasphemed his name. These same Jews, historians tell us, would demand the, the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was possibly the pastor of this church here later on, and he was the last disciple, we believe, to, to know the Apostle John personally. And so it's easy in our text as you read there in verse number uh, 9 how the Bible talks about that they are the synagogue of Satan. Those Jews who had the Word of God, those Jews who had the Old Testament prophets, they had the prophecies, they had the Word of God, they had the, they had the very scriptures of God entrusted to their care. They should have been the ones who, who clung to the cross, who clung to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they blasphemed his name and they called him the hanging one. Just simply by, by, by no respect, simply, simply no worship of him whatsoever. But there is one message that Jesus sends to his church through their pastor, the angel of the church. And the message is simply this. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. I'm going to preach a message to you tonight on that subject of this. Dear Smyrna, stay faithful. Amen. Dear Smyrna, stay faithful. You're doing well. The message was from Jesus Christ to the angel that Jesus had in his right hand, that messenger to the church. The message was you are doing well, stay faithful. You know, tonight, everyone usually stays faithful when there are no difficulties. I realize in society there are people that struggle with faithfulness regardless of what is going on in their life just because that seems to be their, their personality. Their personality is that they are unfaithful. Uh, the only thing you can count on is that they're not accountable. But for the most part, God's people are faithful. God's people are, are good people. God's people are faithful people when the times are good. We know the Bible tells us, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is the hallmark of Christianity. Faithfulness is the example that we have of our Savior. And, and, and faith in itself, which is the seed of faithfulness, is all the way from Genesis to Revelation, what the saint of God is to live by and not by sight. We're very familiar with this thing of faith and faithfulness. No child of God or anyone else who claims Christianity, even in the most casual of sense, would ever dismiss or belittle faith and faithfulness. 
Even people who are not saved, when you knock on their door and you tell them about Jesus Christ, you tell them that he died for their sin on the cross, many times they say, well, I'm, I'm a person of faith, right? They understand the importance, the significance of faith and faithfulness in the Christian life. But the fact is, faithfulness is always tested when there's a trial or when it seems that faithfulness is not getting us what we bargained for. That's where we find the church at Smyrna tonight. And that's where we find how this applies to you and I. Because none of us would argue that faithfulness is important. We could all quote it. More of it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We have no problem with that. But where the rubber meets the road is when our faithfulness did not get us what we thought it would get us. Tonight, when you, when, you, when you look at this, would you, would you take the admonition that Jesus Christ gave to his church here, dear Smyrna, would you take the admonition and realize your faithfulness will be tested and you are to remain steadfast, you are to remain faithful, or you will fall by the wayside when tribulations come in this life. I want you to see, first of all, tonight, as we understand how that we are able to have this faithfulness and how we are to understand what Jesus Christ was writing to this church, I want us to understand, first of all, the author. Look in verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, that's the pastor, right? These things saith, this is who it's from, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Amen. You know, it's always important to find out who is writing you a letter, isn't it? It can, it can save you a lot of embarrassment to find out who wrote you the letter that, that you're reading. Uh, my wife and I wrote letters almost daily in college, sometimes multiple times a day. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, we didn't have text messages. We had, we had to pay phones in our, in our dorm room, and those were used with a, with a prepaid card to call my parents. Uh, we, used, we, we wrote letters. We, we wrote letters often. Uh, we didn't have all these types of things. Last week, I learned something new from Brother Bertram about, about, about cupcaking. I don't have any idea what that's about. We wrote letters, and we wrote, we wrote lots of letters. We were limited on how much time we could, we could spend, but we could write letters. Now, could you imagine the confusion it would have caused if I would have received a letter from my wife-to-be, thinking it was from my parents, a friend back home, or my boss? No, knowing who wrote you the letter helps you understand the message of the letter. It helps you understand the heart and the mind of the author of the letter. If I were to get a letter uh, from, from uh, uh, my wife-to-be, or I didn't, maybe didn't know who it was, and I would have received a letter there in my dorm room, there in college, and it, at the very end of it, it said, I'll see you first thing in the morning. Well, if I would have thought that was my boss, I would have thought, oh my, what did I do? But what I thought was my girlfriend, I thought, boy, I'm ready for tomorrow morning. I'm looking forward to the next day. Now, all of these letters in these seven churches, they're written by the same author, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one standing in the midst of the candlestick, his churches, and the one holding the pastors in his right hand, chapter 1, verse number 20. But get this, although it's always the same author, he introduces himself in a different way in each letter. Why? Because he's trying to give them a different aspect of who he is and who he wants to be to them. 
Boy, I'm so thankful tonight that our God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he's also a God that never changes. He's also a God that is also, he can be a blessing to you, he can be a joy to you, he can be a comfort to you, he can be a chastisement to me. He's everything we need, and he's all that we need. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can't put our God in a box. That's what he's trying to address these churches to, of these different there's different perspectives of who he was as writing to them. So the author to this church at Smyrna, what does he say? What's his perspective? Who is, he, who is he describing himself as? He says, I am the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Aren't you glad tonight that he's, a, he's alive? He was reminding them in this open letter, you might die. In this persecution, you might die in this tribulation, you might die uh, uh, in this trial from, from uh, Rome or whoever it might be from, you might die through all of this, but I've already died for you, so you've got nothing to fear. Why? Because I'm alive. And because I'm alive, you're going to live forever as well too. That was, that was their hope. That was the resurrection hope that they had. The Bible tells us we're all men most miserable if we don't have that hope. But the, the first and the last, he which was dead and is alive, was telling them, you have nothing to fear in death because I've already faced it I'm, and I'm still alive. Tonight, death is nothing to fear for the child of God. Death is not a threat. Death for the saved person makes us more alive than ever. I love the saying by Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody once said, One day you shall read that Dwight Moody has died. Do not believe a word of it, because it is at that moment I shall be more alive than I ever have been. You know, there's Bible to prove that. The Bible tells in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Dear Smyrna, stay faithful. Why? Why? Who, who says we should stay faithful? The one who was dead and is alive is telling you to stay faithful. It'd be one thing in this, if this letter uh, of exhortation came from uh, maybe a loved one who had passed away or maybe an apostle that this church had, had close contact with, but it comes from Jesus Christ who is alive forevermore. And when it comes from him, when that letter, when that commendation comes from him, when that exhortation comes from him, it carries all the weight in the world that I am supposed to do what he's about to tell me to do because it comes from the one who was dead and is alive. So know the author, but look with me secondly. I want you to see that he knows your situation. Your situation is known. Verse number nine, he says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus doesn't stop with just an introduction of who he is. He shows that he knows not only who they are, but he knows what they're going through. He knows what they're, what they're facing. Sometimes that's all it takes to get you through a difficult situation is just to know that, that someone knows, that someone cares. They don't have to have the answers to all of your questions. They don't have to have a solution to your problem, but just to know someone cares. It's like a child that comes to his parent and really, it's nothing the parent can fix or can solve, but just the fact that the parent would stop and listen and show some care and concern, doesn't that sometimes just seem to quell all the fear that's in the child's heart? And they see it, they hear it, and they walk away, and they're happy again. Why? Just to know that someone 
Someone cares. And Jesus here, he's describing that he knows. He's not just saying, this is who I am, but he's saying, I know where you are and I know what is affecting you in your life. The Bible isn't specific on what their works were. Uh, Some of the other seven churches, God was very specific about what they were. But what's important for you and I to note for us as well tonight is that they still had works in spite of their persecution and in spite of the tribulation. So what the work was wasn't as important was that they still had works. They were still doing what God had told them to do. They were still being faithful. They were still carrying forth the Great Commission. They were still standing against heresy. They were still standing and trying to keep the church pure from apostasy. They were doing all of those things, and Jesus wasn't going to single out one of them because the important fact was is that they were working in the midst of a tribulation. They were still working in the midst of a trial. Now tonight, we're not talking about the kind of a tribulation where you get a flat on the way to church. We're not talking about the type of tribulation where you're made fun of at work for praying. Or where maybe you're called out in a, in a secular college for your belief in Christ. These Christians in Smyrna and across Asia Minor were having property confiscated. They were being thrown before wild and hungry lions and angry bulls. And when they went to prison, it was to be put to death. Rome wasn't in the habit of populating its prisons to take care of people the rest of their life. And that word tribulation that the Bible talks about there that Jesus said, I I know of in verse number nine, I know thy works in tribulation. That word tribulation literally means severe affliction to the point of being distressed of life. They despaired life itself because of the heaviness of the tribulation. I'm not saying they got mad at God. I'm not saying they were bitter and where where they said, we don't want to live anymore. We don't like this anymore. No, that's not what that means. But just the pressure was so much in their life of the tribulation, the trial, the testing that God was allowing them to go through in in that place where they were at, being a witness for him. They despaired even life. I don't know if you've ever faced anything like that tonight. If you haven't, most likely most of us will. There will be those times in our life where we are in a, in a, in a pressure cooker, where it causes a despairing of life where it causes and it brings that that burden heavy upon our heart. And it's interesting that, that the word, in fact, Smyrna itself means myrrh. I did some study on myrrh. We know myrrh, frankincense, those ointments that were used in ancient Bible times. I got to study where, where does myrrh come from? Myrrh is a, is a resin. It's a type of a sap that is only gotten, and the, the, the tree that it's gotten out of is very thorny, it's very spiny, so you couldn't go and get it just directly from itself. They would take and they would, they would whip and they would bruise and beat those trees. They would mar and, mar and scar those trees. They would tear the bark off of them. And eventually, after all that damage was done to the outside, that ointment, that resin, which would become myrrh, would be able to be scraped off. You see what the picture is there. Sometimes we need to be mindful that God allows trials in our life at times not to make us bitter. That's where we make the mistake. But he does it to produce a sweetness in us that is acceptable to him. 
And yes, sometimes it takes a marring of our tree. Sometimes it takes a scarring of the bark of our life to expose that and to allow that that thing that is sweet and acceptable to, to be used by him in that way. The psalmist tells us, and he's mindful of it in Psalm 119, 67, David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Trials and affliction that God allows have a way of bringing us back to him when we've been astray. David said, I would, have, I would have gone and I would have gone all the way had it not been for some affliction. Had it not been for some things that, that brought me back to you. And it helps us sometimes when God allows those things in our life to rekindle our first love for him. Brother Bertram, I wonder maybe if Ephesus had it too good. Maybe they needed a little bit of affliction. Maybe they need a little bit of, a, of, a, of a, 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 a chastising upon the bark of their life to produce some myrrh, to produce some, some resin that would have been sweet to our Savior. That's the part of chastisement that Hebrews 12 talks about. It yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness in our life. I don't know tonight what God may allow to come into your life to cause you to be put into a press. And to, and to squeeze you to the point where you despair even of life itself. But Jesus knows. Be mindful again to why, tonight, the one who was dead and is alive, he knows. He knows all about it. We should never be surprised by tribulation that comes in our life. In fact, if we're living for God, the Bible tells us we ought to expect it. The Bible relates there in verse number 9, the world looked at this church and they evaluated them as poor. And physically they were. They looked at this church and the church members of Smyrna. They looked at their clothes and they were in rags. They looked at what food they had on their table and it was food that they would have fed to their dogs. They looked at their homes and their, their homes were places where they would have stored uh, storage. Uh, they, they had nothing to their, to their physical name, name. They lived from hand to mouth. The world said they were poor, but what did Jesus say? He says, you're rich. They were in complete contrast to a church we'll look at later, the church at Laodicea. The world looked at that church and they said, man, they're rich. They've got the fine clothes. They've got the medicines. They've got the riches. They've got the jewels. They've got the, the money, the gold. They are rich. Jesus looked at them and said they were spiritually poor. But here he looks at this church at Smyrna, who the world says you're poor, and Jesus says you're rich. May I remind you tonight that God is keeping the score. God, God knows the bottom line. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that he's not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love. Do you realize what the Bible is saying there? When, God, when the Bible says God is not unrighteous, that means it, it would be a sin on the part of God for God to forget your work and your labor of love. He sees everything that you do for him. He, he knows all about it. He's not forgetting any of it that you've done in his name, whether it's the bus ministry, whether it's the nursery and taking care of children. And I'm not talking about just taking them and bringing them in there and running them through the mill, whether it's a bus route or it's a nursery, but I'm talking about taking care of people in the love of the name of Jesus Christ and bearing them and, 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 and sharing the gospel with them and showing the love of Christ to them whether it's hushering, whether it's in nursing homes, whether it's a shut-in visit, whether it's preparing for baptisms, whatever it might be, God sees all of those things. Oh, but he says, be careful of your motivations. Those will be tried, those will be tested. But never underestimate the worth of spiritual riches. This church at Smyrna was poor. They were dirt poor as far as the world was concerned. But Jesus said, you're rich. 
Well, tonight we have the riches of salvation. They are, they are beyond measure. We can know the riches of service. Boy, is it a blessing to serve the Lord, whether it's in full-time capacity, whether it's, whether it's a, a bus route, you're running a junior church, a Sunday school, but to, to serve the Lord with your life and see lives changed. God, God has blessed uh, my life and my wife's life in such a way in our ministry where we have seen, we have seen generations to come change. We have seen cycles broken where people are continually doing this and going to jail and getting drunk and doing drugs and doing this. And then all of a sudden, the cycle for the rest of the life of those generations is changed forever. You can't put a price tag on that. Those are riches of service. There's riches in suffering when we enter into suffering that allows us to fellowship with our Savior. The Word of God reminds us that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. When it's so easy in this world, it's so easy in this culture, and I would even say even more so, it's so easy in the Silicon Valley to be so consumed with what we can possess in this life, with what we can, what we can go after. And we, 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 we begin to chase things that cannot be caught, and as a result, we lose what lasts for eternity. And I want to challenge you young people tonight it's been a long time since the crossroads have met. Boy, but this is something that, that, that ought to be close to your heart. Well, because we can, we can begin developing habits and we can begin developing an, an idea and an understanding of career and what I'm going to do and what I desire to do. And, and, and again, we have no desire to run from God. We have no desire to rebel from God. That was my testimony in my life, but I was simply going to do and live my Christian life the way I wanted to live it. And I was going to chase things that could not be caught and lose what lasted for eternity. Boy, allow God to deal with your heart. Allow God to work in you in this area. Don't settle for serving God in any less capacity than his perfect will for your life. Jesus knows your situation, whether it be in despair and being poor, or whether it's rich in abundance or somewhere in between. He knows and he has a plan for your life. Now thirdly, lastly, look at me in verse number 10. We see the expectation remains the same. The expectation remains the same. The Bible says in verse number 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The church at Smyrna was not given any hope that they would escape their suffering or that the tribulations would cease. And I know you can point to the 10 days in verse number 10 and say, well, that's 10 years of persecution. That's 10 periods of different, 10 different emperors persecuting. And that's all fine. But what's it come down to in verse number 10? Death. Be faithful unto death. They weren't given any hope that they would escape from their suffering or that the tribulation would cease. And that's not what we frankly like to hear. We always want the perfect ending. We, we would have liked the letter to the church at Smyrna to end something like, you're going you're to suffer these things, but it's all going to be okay in the end, and you're going to get your church going again. Uh, the, the crowds are going to swell. People are going to be saved by the thousands. Those Jews that were of, uh, of such trouble to you, they're going to get saved. The synagogue is going to go out of business, and you're going to go on, and you're going to glow for the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. That's the type of ending we, we want. But the only end in sight was death for them. But look at this. 
still they were told to be faithful unto death. Now let me pause and ask you, how far does God expect you to go in your faithfulness? How far does he expect you to go? Until you get offended? Until your feelings are hurt? Until you're burned out? Until you enjoy some success? You see, the understanding from the word of God is that we are to be faithful unto death. In fact, it's not even faithfulness, and you can't even say it's faithfulness unless it is all the way to death. Let's think about this. Because many people will take those and say, well, you need to be doing exactly what you're doing for the Lord, and you need to be doing it until death, or you're not right with God, and you're, you're, not, you're not living for God how you should be. But, but is that what God's saying there? I, I don't believe God is saying there's not going to come a time when you can't physically serve the Lord in some way that you used to. That's not the faithfulness until death that the Bible is talking about. This passage is not suggesting that you have to be in the same physical service in your church in your 80s that you were in your 20s or you aren't right with God and you're not finishing faithful. That's not what the Bible is talking about because we know that we live in these physical bodies. We know that they progress. I've met many people that have driven the bus, the bus and worked in the bus ministry for many, many years in their life. But many of them have gotten to the place where they come to their bus director, the bus captain, and say, you know what? My eyes aren't like they used to be. I can't do what I once did. They're not rebellious. They're not bad. It's not that they don't want to serve the Lord. So is that what, that Bible, is that what the Bible's talking about? Be faithful unto death. Would we, be, would we be able to say, well, they weren't faithful unto death because they didn't keep doing physically what they were supposed to be doing? You can't say that. Uh, there's going to come a time when Brother Russ is 97, 98 years old. He's not going to be able to be the youth pastor anymore. He's not going to keep up with them anymore. So does that mean he's not, does that mean he's not faithful unto death anymore? No, listen to me tonight. Faithfulness here speaks of their hope and their reward. Faithfulness meant that they never quit looking to God to supply their needs no matter what happened. Faithfulness meant that they kept their eyes on the prize of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfulness meant that they didn't get sidetracked and start living for themselves. That is what we are supposed to be faithful in until death. Look at me quickly in Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. familiar verse. We're often turned to it out of all the verses that are very familiar in this chapter, but chapter 11, verse number 13. <clears throat> the Bible says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Most of the time, we're all for dying in faith. If verse number 13 would have just stopped where that comma is, these all died in faith, we would have said, praise the Lord. God bless them. They're, they're an inspiration. Boy, they, they encourage me. They, they want to make me uh, uh, die in faith and do more for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that verse doesn't stop there. Look at what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They died in faith, 
but they didn't receive the promises. What does that mean? They never saw with their eyes all that they believed God for in their heart. But even still, what does the Bible say? They were fully persuaded in what they believed, they embraced it, and they confessed it. What does that mean? They told everyone about it and they weren't ashamed of it. You got that? They died not having received the promise. Tonight, if you're only going to be faithful so long as you think God is going to be obligated to fulfill everything in your lifetime, you're going to die disappointed. Why? Because God is on a larger scale than we are. God thinks beyond the 70 or 80 or whatever years your lifespan is going to be. God operates in the light of eternity. It's a, it's a bigger picture that we cannot see. And so there is to be no end to our faithfulness, even if it means dying. So the expectation of the child of God, God's expectation of us, and God's expectation of this church in Smyrna here was no matter how difficult or easy or in between your life is and my life is going to be, it is to be faithful. God's expectation of us is to be faithful until all the way to death. And what does he say? He ends there that letter to those who will be there is a crown of life awaiting and notice who it's going to be given to you by, by the one who was dead and is alive. The one who writes this letter of encouragement, he says, I'm, I'm waiting for you, and I'm, I'm going to have a crown for you, those that finished faithful. During your years of life, there might be some things that come and crush you. There might be tribulation. There might be trial that God allows to come. But again, what's it for? It's to bring forth that sweet-smelling fragrance. And I want to encourage you tonight to allow it to be a time of joy. Allow it to be a time of, of rejoicing and encouragement, not a, not a bitter time. Why? Knowing that a crown is coming to the one who is, who is faithful, to the one who is, who is faithful all the way to death. And so many times we think, well, I don't, I don't want to serve the Lord for a, for a prize. I don't want to serve the Lord for a reward. What did Paul say? We're not as people that run for no trophy. We're not as people that fight and shadow box and beat the air. No, we run to win the prize. We fight to win. And he talks about there's, there's crowns that we are to win. And so God says, stay faithful all the way to death. And there's a, there's a crown coming to the one who is. Dear Smyrna, stay faithful. How long? Until death. What if I don't receive any promises or what if I don't have any relief from my circumstances? Stay faithful until death. And there's a crown waiting. You see, not everyone sitting next to you. You can look to your neighbor side to side and front to back. Not everyone can do what you can do. And they can't do what you can do. But everyone tonight here, young and old, rich and poor, skilled and unskilled, can determine tonight, I am going to be faithful unto death all the way to the end. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.